My name is Bill Daly, and I'm a member of the congregation here. This morning, when I was paying for my coffee at Quick Trip, I noticed an item that they had for sale that was called Focus Enhancement Gum. And uh, my first thought was, they don't sell enough. <laughs> um, you know, there are words and phrases that we use frequently and we use them so often that they just float out of our mouths and through our minds without our stopping to think about what they really mean or the significance of them. And one of those words that can fall into that category is faith. What is it? You know, um, what does it really mean? What's the significance of it? So this morning, what I would like for us to do is to go in and we want to look at what biblical characters can teach us about the nature of faith. And uh, if we're interested in approaching things that way, Abraham's probably not a bad place to start. Now, Abraham is, an ex is cited as an example of faith throughout Scripture. Uh, Paul, in particular, bases much of his argument for faith in Romans and Galatians uh, on the example of Abraham. Now, Romans 4.3 tells us what the scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, in order to understand Abraham's faith, it'd be useful to look at the world and the circumstances that he lived in. You know, today, when we look at biblical characters or in, in their lives, we tend to view them as cartoon characters almost in these fantasy worlds. In actual fact, they were real people in a real world. Abraham's birth is dated to around 2020 B.C., that's almost exactly the number of years before the birth of Christ that we're living the number of years after the birth of Christ. Not as long as you might think. Uh, when we first encounter Abraham, he's about 75 years old, and he's living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a prosperous city in southern Mesopotamia on the Euphrates River about 200 miles southeast of current-day Baghdad in Iraq. Uh, it was famous for witchcraft. It was famous for astrology. It was a prosperous trading city that was surrounded by good irrigated farmland. It was remarkably and noted for its polytheism and especially the worship of the moon goddess Nana. Um, while paper had not yet paper writing had not yet uh, been invented. They had been communicating using cuneiform tablets. These are clay tablets that you impress an image in for over a thousand years, keeping their records and in, in, in things like that. Um, so it was a highly developed society and culture with elaborate laws, cultivated art, and um, multi-story buildings. Matter of fact, it was famous for their rectangular stepped towers called zagernauts 
that were viewed by them as gateways from earth to heaven to worship their various gods. These things would be 150 feet high, and there are still remnants of those today. North of there, Haran, which was actually up almost in Syria, where Terah and Abraham uh, moved, was a center of, of worship of this Nana, the moon goddess, as well. And it was a pilgrimage site between the two. So what was Abraham's world like in 2020 BC? Egypt was in its middle kingdom. It was centered in Thebes. The Great Pyramid was already 600 years old. They were trading throughout the Middle East and throughout the Mediterranean. It was a highly sophisticated society with much of the art that we think of today. When you see these images of, of paintings and various things that are Egyptian, they're coming from that period, okay? North of there, in Crete, the Minoans were already creating complex urban settlements and, and very sophisticated art. In Greece, the Mycenaeans had migrated from India through the Middle East and were establishing control of the countryside. In Europe, it was the Bronze Age with increased farming and stone settlements. In England, the inner parts of Stonehenge were erected already. In northern Mexico, early settlement and farming was beginning. The rest of the Americas were hunter-gatherers predominantly. China was in its first dynasty and was already using metals for knives and implements. They were starting flood control projects. They were organizing provinces. It was an old and highly developed society. So the question comes up, in a world like this, in sophisticated societies, all these different things going on, why Abraham? Why would God pick him? Um, we, Abraham was about 75 years old when we meet him in Genesis. He had a father, Terah, a wife, Sarah, who was his deceased uncle's daughter, and a nephew, Lot. The one thing that united this world that we just talked about throughout was that all the peoples mentioned were polytheist. They worshiped multiple gods. They worshiped idols. Terah, Abraham's father, worshiped idols. Ur was famous for its polytheism. Abraham living in a world that was lit only by fire, looked at the heavens and the creation around him, and he realized that it had to have a creator. It had to have one God. When God spoke to Abraham and told him to leave all that he was familiar with and move to a strange land, Abraham had no clue as to what the promise that he would be a great nation and that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed meant. He simply didn't have a clue. In Genesis 12:1, we read, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be blessed, a blessing. A blessing. 
will bless, you will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Being 75 years old, with no chance of a genetic family, Abraham simply trusted God, and he did what he was told. He didn't need to understand. He didn't need to, to understand that there was a Christ or Jesus or anything like that in the future. He simply needed to trust that God knew what was best and to obey. Abram wasn't perfect. He got it wrong multiple times. Uh, for instance, when he went to Egypt and he passed Sarah off as his sister. And when he and Sarah decided to help God with the plan uh, by him sleeping with Hagar to produce Ishmael, a decision whose consequences we still live with today. But when it mattered, when told to sacrifice his only son and heir to the promise, Abraham was willing to obey. In Hebrews 11:17, we're told by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a narrative speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham never had a clue about Jesus and God's plan to save man. He simply trusted God, had a plan, and he did, and he knew that God knew best. Well, what about Moses? <laughs> Moses returned to Egypt knowing that his life was at risk for killing an Egyptian while he was defending an Israelite. He had no clue how he was going to save three million Israelites trapped between the army of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. He sure didn't understand how he's going to feed all those people in a wilderness. Moses never had a clue about God's plan to bring Jesus into the world and his role in it. He didn't have to know or understand. He just had to trust God had a plan and that God knew what was best for him and what was best for mankind. Let's look at another example. What about David? <laughs> this whippersnapper, presumptuous as he was of, as a, of a kid, shows up at the battle line to bring bread and cheese to his older brothers and sees this nine-foot giant taunting the Israeli army. His brother said, get lost, kid, take off. In 1 Samuel, we see how David approached the Goliath. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. Um, David went on to be king, and in spite of his faults, he was a man after God's own heart. David had no clue as to God's long-term plan and his role in it. 
But he did love God, and he trusted that God knew what was best and wanted what was best for mankind. There's a theme here, isn't there? The list of faithful men and women is long, and it goes right through the prophets. None knew of Jesus. They had some idea of a Messiah coming, but they were clueless as to the plan. What all did do was trust God. But the expectation that God wanted, of what God wanted from man began long before Abraham. It began with God's creation of man and a perfect environment for him to enjoy. All God asked of Adam and Eve was that they trust his sovereignty, that he knew what was best for them. Now Satan intervened saying, you're bright folks. You don't need to obey anybody. You can be your own God. And that's been man's battle ever since. Trusting that God knows better than we do. Making God sovereign in our lives. What about after Jesus came? Well, we have John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's disciples had a problem with Jesus' disciples. In John 3 we see... His, John's disciples came to him and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, you know, the one you test about, testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. In John 3.28, Jesus, John the Baptist replied, You yourselves can testify that I said... I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens to him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. You see, John the Baptist knew God had a plan. And he trusted God's plan, and he trusted his role in that plan. What about the disciples? Well, let's take a look at Thomas. Now, when I mention Thomas, what's the first thing you think about? Doubting Thomas. But there's a lot more to the man. Um, after Jesus' healing of the blind man, it provoked a major confrontation with the Pharisees who committed to killing Jesus. Um, Jesus crossed the Jordan River to be in a safer place when he received word that Lazarus was ill. He waited two days until Lazarus was dead, and then he announced that his plans to return to Bethany. Uh, the disciples weren't happy with this, and uh, they argued that they needed to stay where they were, that you know, he wasn't going to change things going. When Jesus insisted that he was going back, we hear this from Thomas. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, <laughs> let's also go that we may die with him. <laughs> you know? Um, Thomas like all the disciples, believed Jesus was the Messiah, although they had a totally different view of the role of the Messiah. He didn't understand the plan, but he trusted that God had a plan. 
Later that night, Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was saying he was going to be going uh, that night that he was to be betrayed. Jesus said he was going away. And we see Thomas saying to him again, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Right up to the very end, the very night that Jesus is betrayed, the disciples did not understand what had to happen. Jesus did not expect them to understand, only to trust God as he did and to obey. See, Jesus was the example of trust. Only after the resurrection and ascension did it suddenly make sense. Of course, there's always Peter. What does Peter do? <laughs> well, Peter cut off the ear of the high priest servant in the garden when they were arresting Jesus. This is right when Jesus is to be crucified. You see, they were clueless. The disciples were absolutely clueless about the plan. But they did trust that God had a plan. So all these examples, what do they have in common? One, they believed in God the creator. Two, they trusted God had a plan even while not knowing details of the plan. Three, they were all flawed people. This is getting personal now, isn't it? Four, they acted on their trust. You see, Jesus was the example of faith. Jesus trusted the Father and he obeyed. In John 12, we see, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. You know, as you go through the Bible and you watch and you put yourself in the positions of these people, and we should do that with every character and see, does that fit me or not, and how would I react? It, it's, it's a lot like watching a well-written and produced mystery series. I don't know if you do that. We're bad about doing it. Where the final solution is revealed in the very last scene. If it's really well done, it's even more fun to go back and watch it again and suddenly notice the little clues in the background or the look on the face, or the gesture in the first scene, and the other tip-offs throughout the story. So, all this said, what's our advantage over these folks? Our advantage is, we know the ending. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, advantage? We have the book. We know the ending. We know the plan. We know of the resurrection of the believers. We have the hope that was spoken of. Christians are not promised an easy life. 
Matter of fact, it's the opposite. All these examples that we use suffered. The apostles, after the ascension, finally understood what it was all about. They understood the plan. They knew of the promise of the resurrection. They all trusted God. They all suffered. Most died early. John being the exception, living to write the unique gospel 70 years after events. We do not know what will happen day to day or year to year. But we do know that God has a plan and he has a plan for us. So how is this useful to me when I walk out of this building and my life has fallen apart around me? I have perspective. I know what's important in the long term. I can play the long game, eternal life. I know I'm in good company. I trust God. I have inner peace because God has a plan. He has a plan and his will will be done. I can't start to understand all that will happen in my life. How many of you today a year ago could have predicted what was going to happen in your life this last year. But I know God has a long-term plan for me to spend eternity in his presence. What I have to do is trust. And guess what that trust we keep saying is? That's faith. Faith is trust. I have to trust. And what do these people do? I have to obey. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Now faith is a confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. Faith equals trust. Trust manifests itself as obedience.